contains grim descriptions of graphic content intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. My name is Gage. And I'm Ray. And you are listening to Gory Part, uh, a true crime podcast. Uh, oh my God. We are back. Holy shit. I know. It seemed like forever. I'm so sorry, guys. Like, literally, the first thing that hit my brain, I was like, oh my God, have I forgot how to podcast? <laughs> <laughs> It has been so long. We are so happy to be back. This is also our new sound. We may or may not have upgraded our equipment over our break. Oh, we definitely did. We definitely <laughs> did, which was much needed. I know a lot of you guys were saying that there were some volume issues in our last few episodes before the vacation. So we just went ahead and bought new microphones, kind of remastered everything. So you guys can expect a cleaner, better brighter <laughs> listening experience <laughs> but honestly it's it was really really much needed the time off was awesome our vacation was really really fun we loaded up the fur babies and we drove up to kentucky yeah we saw some friends of ours um just the general change of scenery was really nice kentucky is a beautiful state like all the mountains and the changing leaves we were going ooh, ooh, ooh. it was so so nice like again the change of scenery did a lot for my mental health. I'm sure it did yours too. It was just nice to have a road trip with you and the dogs, honestly. Like, it was actually our first road trip, just me and you. Yeah. So, and I was really creeped out too because the white wolf that we saw was, <laughs> I swear it was a white wolf. Yeah, that shit was honestly crazy. I cannot even tell you guys where we were at. We were at some place on the interstate going in, in yeah going into kentucky and just on the side of the road we see this large white dog slap i mean it looked it really did look like a wolf like it if did. it wasn't a wolf then it was probably some kind of husky or something i don't really know but it was really weird but also like amazingly beautiful like it made me rear my head around Reagan style and I almost <laughs> broke my neck. I was like, oh, my God. I know. And I couldn't stop talking about it every five minutes. Like, did you see that? Did you fucking see that? <laughs> so, guys, wherever you are, we hope you're having a good day, a good week and, and a, a good, good life. We always wish you the best no matter where you are or what you're doing, as long as you're not hurting anyone or yourself. Exactly, because we love you. And we will always love you as long as you consent to it, that is. Because consent is important. Oh, it feels so good to be back. It really does. We're just on here saying our usual dumb shit. <laughs> <laughs> I'm truly, truly happy to be back. And uh, a few more things, too, before we dive into everything, because I know you guys are probably really ready for a new episode, and that's what we're going to deliver. But I just want to take one second to thank our newest Gorgoat. Her name is Stephanie. Stephanie. Welcome, Stephanie. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We're happy welcome. to have you. Thank you for joining the Gorgoats. And that's also a reminder to you guys that me and Ray do have a Patreon page. But it's only for support. We don't offer any 
extra bonus content as of yet. That will definitely change one day, but for right now, we only have one $5 tier that you can join if you just want to support our show and help us out. But you totally don't have to. It's just optional. Yeah. (laughs) And I also want to say, too, that I hope everyone had a wonderful holiday last week. I won't lie. Thanksgiving is one of those holidays that I just don't really fuck with because, (laughs) you know, we're living on bloodstained and stolen land that never belonged to any of us. And just, you know, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll stop it right there. But I do hope that everyone got to enjoy some good food and positive vibes with the people that they love. And for those of you that have a harder time during the holidays, for whatever reason it may be, I hope the day was filled with whatever happiness and love that you could bring to it. Aww. Gage, that was really sweet. I'm very proud of you, Gage. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I do be trying. How was your Thanksgiving? Because I didn't get the chance to go because I got sick with the flu and then Sir got really, really sick. So Yeah, you definitely did. Ray was sick as fuck. <laughs> it was so bad. <laughs> Bless your heart. You were going through it. I never want to be away from you for that long ever again. It like, sucked. It really started like... My mental illness really started showing. It was so bad. It was so bad. We were FaceTiming as much as possible, but I couldn't be on FaceTime that much because I was like, I'm sorry, bitch. I just don't feel good. I know. It was awful. I'm glad you're feeling better, though. And also thanks to all the listeners that wished Ray uh, get well wishes. That was really sweet of all of you, and we appreciate that. It was very, very sweet. And thank you to Savannah and Alicia for messaging me and, you know, letting me know you know, hey, I'm sorry that you're sick, man. I hope you feel better. <laughs> yes, Alicia and Savannah, if you're listening, we love you. Thank you very, very much. But to answer your question, my Thanksgiving was really, I mean, it was Thanksgiving. I mean, I ate a shit ton of food. <laughs> like, I ate a metric fuck ton of food. I, you know, I watched anime afterwards. I can't really complain. Also, and I promise we'll get into the episode right after this, but for any of our listeners that watch anime like you know that me and ray love anime and that's like my biggest thing and i'm not going to give spoilers but i will say that i finished watching the final chapters of attack on titan nice deceased (laughs) deceased i was so fucking depressed that i i could not like i didn't want to do anything i didn't want to breathe i didn't want to be alive I just, oh, no. I just, I laid in my bed and I sobbed over it. It was just, oh my God, I'm still reeling from that. So I'm not going to make this episode about Attack on Titan, but you know, if you know, you know. <laughs> if you know, you know. <laughs> I did want to say one last thing before we dive in, and that's, guys, without you, we never would have been able to even have this podcast or even be able to upgrade our equipment and the support and the love and the kindness that all of you guys have shown, like... My my little heart is bursting. We love and appreciate each and every one of you truly. We can't even can't even put it into words. I really can't put it into words. There's just so much love going on right now. <laughs> Bitch, what? Uh, I know. Ooh, I'm making it awkward. <laughs> this but is making me uncomfortable, yeah. Uncomfortable, yeah. Which I will say that today's case is definitely going to do that. Oh, fuck. And now that we've gotten all of the uh, intro stuff out of the way, our warm welcomes and whatnot, we can now begin my episode. So uh, buckle up your assholes, everybody. This one's going to be pretty rough. Please remember to keep the asshole chair seat 
facing toward the back of the vehicle as we move forward. Thank you. What is a chair seat? You know, a car seat. (laughs) But a chair. But a chair. Oh, well, regardless of what mechanism it is, fasten them assholes, everybody. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So the case that I picked for this week is a double homicide case that happened in Davis, California in April of 2013. I learned about this case a few months ago, and it uh, it's more than disturbing. These murders were committed by Daniel Marsh. This is one of the most senseless and brutal cases, more specifically sinicide, that I've ever learned about, like, ever. <laughs> ever. Uh, what's sinicide? Sinicide is when uh, someone murders the elderly. Oh. Yeah. It's, okay. Yeah, it's pretty rough. Daniel was only 15 years old at the time of the murders. Wh- 15. 15. Okay. Um, I had a hard time wrapping my mind around this one. You'll see why as we progress through everything. Uh, but a little bit about Davis, California. It's a college town located west of Sacramento. It's a community known for its comfortable small town atmosphere, successful universities, and it's also home to the United States Bicycling Hall of Fame. What? Yeah, I thought that was pretty cool. I genuinely did not know there was a bicycling hall of fame anywhere. That's exactly why uh, I said what. But yeah, it's a museum with lots of antique bicycles and trophies and other bicycle related things. Oh, okay, that's cool. So Davis is a place where people from all walks of life live. It's a common thing for people to spend their retirements there. You know, that's that's just the general vibe. And when these murders happened, it was a level of savagery that was just almost unheard of, especially in this area. So to give you a very brief idea of what this case entails, on April 14th, 2013, 15-year-old Daniel Marsh broke into the home of Claudia Maupin and Oliver Northup. Claudia was 76 years old, and Oliver, who also went by Chip, was 87 years old. Oh my God. Daniel brutally murdered and then mutilated both of them while they laid in their bed. It is absolutely horrific, and we're going to get into all of it. The way my jaw just hit the floor. It is insane. Like, I need I, workman's comp right now. <laughs> <laughs> you said, like, but we're only, like, three minutes into this and, like, workman's comp. We need a workman's comp button yes. like that we can just slap and it screams workman's comp. <laughs> <laughs> like, we... <gasps> We may actually do that. We may actually. We may do have that. to do that. Uh, but before I start breaking everything down in this case, I would like to take a moment to say that my deepest condolences go to the families and friends of Claudia and Chip. This is an extremely tragic story, and my only wish is to tell the events of the case as accurately as possible, while at the same time giving the utmost respect to the people that were affected by these crimes. So my heart truly goes out to you. I just, I couldn't imagine. So let's begin by talking about Daniel. We're going to start the story here because I think it's important that we have a grasp on some big things that happened in his childhood that affected him in horribly negative ways. Mm. One of the many things that makes this case so incredibly disturbing is not only the fact that he was only 15 years old when he committed the killings, but also Daniel Marsh is a true psychopath. Like through and through, he was a genuine fucking psychopath oh my god Um, i'm just laughing out of nervousness i promise uh and we learn later that his psychopathic tendencies as well as his desire to brutally kill other people developed before he was 11 years old so it is you know for the hundredth time it's insane to say the very least god 
Daniel William Marsh was born to his parents, Sherry Hoskins and Bill Marsh, on May 14, 1997, in Davis, California. Daniel also has one older sister named Sarah, and the kids grew up in Davis. Now, from everything that I could find, Daniel's parents had a super volatile relationship. It was very toxic, just not good. And Daniel and Sarah were both affected by this greatly. They were both caught in the middle of continuous conflict from early ages. One of the earliest events that I could find that may have affected the kids in a profound way took place when Daniel was only two or three years old. Mm -hmm. It was said that his mother suffered a severe head injury and then she developed amnesia. And it was a pretty severe case of amnesia. Like she forgot who her kids were. She forgot who her husband was. I mean... I mean, it was pretty bad, evidently. That is so scary. Like, anytime you think about amnesia... It is scary. It, it, it is very scary. It just blows my mind how the brain acts in certain situations. Right. Again, I just could not imagine. But uh, I read that she went to live with her mom, so Daniel's grandmother, for a span of four years so okay. she could recover from the head injury, leaving Daniel and Sarah with Bill. And four years is a pretty lengthy span of time, for sure. And the kids were super young, too, so I can imagine that all of that would be a bit traumatic. I also read that Bill wasn't exactly the most calm of people either. He had a problem expressing his emotions, and he was very oftentimes angry. Mm -hmm. Way later in this case, at Daniel's trial, Sherry testified that Bill was very quick to anger, very quick to yelling and screaming. She also said that she noticed that both Daniel and Sarah would be visibly more tense and quiet when they were around their dad. Daniel himself even talked about how it just wasn't fun living with his dad due to him just being pissed off all the time. Mm -hmm. He talked about that a little with one of the detectives that questioned him during his interrogation, like way later on after he does everything. Okay, and was this like an abusive situation? Would he just... Well, it was it was an, an abusive situation, but not physically abusive. Daniel claimed that his dad never physically abused him or his sister in any way, but he was pretty much abusive in every other way, which, I mean, gotcha. we all know that it doesn't have to be physical abuse for it still to be, in fact, traumatic abuse. Right. You know what I'm exactly. saying? So yeah. it, it, it was a, an abusive situation, just not physically. So if all of this is true, then I can imagine that it was indeed hellish for Daniel and Sarah to be alone with their dad for any amount of time. But going back to the concussion story... I don't exactly know how much weight it holds because Bill claims up and down that it happened. He swears that it did. Mm -hmm. But Sherry has a totally different version of events. She claims that she only sustained a minor concussion, but she denied ever having amnesia of any degree for any amount of time. And she denies ever leaving her kids for four years. Interesting. So it's just a mess. Like you have one person's word against another. You have two people pointing the finger at each other. So, I mean, I don't know what's true and what's not in this specific situation, but right. if anything, I believe that this gives a little insight into how the relationship kind of was between Bill and Sherry. You know what I mean? Like, obviously, from the outside, you can't 100% know everything about someone else's relationship. A lot of things can happen behind closed doors. Of course. But I believe with this, you can kind of grasp an idea of maybe what the dynamic was like there. I mean, you know, lots of finger pointing, blame, accusations, that kind of stuff. Right. Either way we look at it, the situation wasn't good. This was a, this was like a very throw dirt on one another kind of relationship. You know what I'm saying? I hate that. And Daniel and Sarah, unfortunately, were caught in the middle of that quite often. Yeah. Now, the next thing to happen in Daniel's life that was pretty significant took place when he was 10 years old. 
I don't have a lot of details surrounding the specifics of this, but basically his mom started having an affair with another woman. And this other woman just happened to be Daniel's former kindergarten teacher. Get the fuck out of here. Yeah. No. And this affair was a pretty serious one. And it ultimately led to Sherry and Bill separating and getting a divorce. And this had a horrible impact on Daniel's psyche. Of course. He went from being a very sweet and polite child to, you know, now he was very confrontational and angry. He started losing his temper all of the time at home, at school. Uh, After this affair started, he began avoiding his mother. Uh, He was doing whatever he could to not spend time with her. And during the times when he was around his mother, it was said that Daniel was very confrontational with her and he'd act out aggressively towards her, calling her a slew of different names, including homophobic slurs and so on and so forth. Okay. Yeah. I mean, he's 10. He was... So angry over his family being broken up, he didn't understand it, and he was deeply hurt by it. And from what I could find, Daniel's older sister was leaning more in the direction of being supportive of their mom's newfound relationship. Mm -hmm. But Daniel took his dad's side, and evidently Bill would also use some pretty derogatory language towards Sherry in front of the kids all of the time. That's fucked. And that's where Daniel learned a lot of his language, you know, regarding the matter. You yeah, know, monkey see, monkey do. Kind the homophobic of thing. slurs, all that. He learned it because that's how his dad was talking about his mom in front of him all the time. And so that further made him very angry. And it would be within a year of this happening when Daniel was again, well, let me just rephrase, 10 years old, that he started experiencing intense homicidal fantasies. More specifically, when the fantasies first developed, he was fantasizing about murdering his former teacher, the woman that he blamed for breaking his family apart. Man. Daniel, yeah, it's bad. Daniel would go on to tell his classmates about how he fantasized about slitting her throat and even strangling her to death. Yeah. Uh, Okay. All right. Yeah. At the age of 11, Daniel started seeing a behavioral counselor and he confided about these impulses to this counselor as well. And also at the age of 11, he was diagnosed with adjustment disorder and depression. And for those of you that don't know what adjustment disorder is, it's defined as an extreme and long lasting reaction to traumatic stimuli. Okay. So very brief description. I'm not a psychologist, but just in case you didn't know what that was. I Googled it. Oh, no. Nice. Thanks, Google. <laughs> and it would be the next year after that, in November of 2009, when Daniel was only 12 years old, that another significant event would take place in his life. Oh, no. It was in 2009 that Daniel Marsh was awarded the American Red Cross Heroes Award for saving his father's life. Oh, wow. So, basically what happened, Daniel was at home with his dad, they were eating dinner, and everything seemed normal enough. But Bill started having a heart attack right there at the table. Oh, shit. So he panicked and he got Daniel and they ran to the truck. Bill was trying to get himself to the hospital as fast as possible. So they're going down the highway. Daniel is in the passenger seat and Bill blacked out completely while driving. The truck was still moving. Bill's foot was still on the accelerator the entire time that he was blacked out. Holy shit. So they're just speeding down the road. Bill is unconscious. There are other cars and people walking. It was an incredibly dangerous situation. So Daniel, at only 12 years old, tried stopping the car by hitting the brakes, but he wasn't able to reach them. 
So Daniel grabbed the steering wheel and he pulled the truck off of the road. They bounced over a curb and went through some hedges before the truck ultimately crashed into a concrete barrier. And luckily, Daniel was not injured by this accident. And as soon as the truck stopped, Daniel realized that his father was still unconscious. His heart had actually stopped at this point. Oh, my God. So Daniel started banging on his dad's chest, trying to do anything he could to wake him up. And this miraculously shocked Bill's heart into beating again. And he woke up. So Daniel had quite literally saved his dad's life. And not only did Daniel save his dad, but he also saved countless other people when he turned the truck off of the road. No one was injured because of Daniel. Wow. It's definitely something more than noteworthy. I mean, again, he was 12 at 12 years old. If I was in a situation like that, we we would have been fucked. (laughs) I'm I'm just going to leave it. at. I will be crying, screaming, pissing and shitting all at the same time. And not in that order. (laughs) And not in that order. (laughs) So after Daniel did this, he was praised by his community as a hero. He was on the news. He had countless TV interviews and even articles written about him. He became a local celebrity in a lot of ways. And as I just said a hot second ago, Daniel did receive the American Red Cross Heroes Award for his actions, and he was officially honored at the Yolo County Red Cross Heroes Luncheon in 2009. That, that's really awesome, but I'm not looking forward to where this is about to go. <laughs> Oh, yeah, because I hate to tell you, it's not good. It's just really not good. And even though this segment of the story seems positive enough, the whole experience actually had a negative impact on Daniel and his mind. According to his mother, she believed that the whole experience traumatized Daniel. And I mean, that makes sense. You think about how young he is and then you compare it to the gravity of the situation. I mean, that's some pretty intense shit to go through at just 12 years old, you know? Sprinkle in a little PTSD like Salt right. Bay. And evidently, Daniel getting all of the recognition that he did caused him to relive the trauma of the situation repeatedly. Yeah. So none of this exactly helped Daniel. He continued to struggle and spiral more severely as time went on. And it wasn't long before Daniel started killing animals in his neighborhood. And it begins. He would kill cats, birds. Uh, I also found that he killed raccoons and also attempted to kill a dog as well. Oh, my God. It's super intense. Uh, He started doing this when he was young, like young, young. When Daniel was hanging out with a friend of his one day, he found a stray cat in the street and he picked it up and strangled it to death with his bare hands in front of his friend. And when his friend asked why he'd done it, Daniel responded, quote, well, I just wanted to. I hated that cat, end quote. Uh, Excuse me? As well as the killing of animals, Daniel also developed a fascination with fire spitting, and he also had a prolonged issue with wetting the bed. And I know that may seem a little unnecessary for me to bring up, but I did bring it up for a reason. That reason being, Daniel completes the McDonald triad. And for those of you that don't know what I'm talking about, <laughs> yeah, that's really what it's called. So, wait, wait you said <laughs> <laughs> the only thing that came to mind was McDonald's himself, and then the burglar, and then the, the hamburglar, <laughs> and not the, the fucking and hamburglar. Then the purple dude. Isn't his name like Grimsley or Grim. something? Grimsley. It starts with a G. I just can't think of oh it. Oh my but yes. god. Uh, the McDonald Triad. <laughs> it's a real thing, and it's okay. I'm sorry. Let me not good. laugh. 
It's a set of three factors, and it said that if someone displays two of the three factors in the McDonald triad, then there's an extremely high possibility that said individual has a psychopathic personality. The purpose of the McDonald triad is to predict possible violent offenders, and the three traits are as follows. The torture, mutilation, and killing of animals. A strong fascination with fire and starting fires. Mm-hmm. And enuresis, which is the medical term for bedwetting. Okay, so I'm sorry for laughing. I know that part of it isn't funny, but when you said McDonald triad, it's a like the hamburger just my, pops in sometimes. Like my brain went immediately like, what it's the okay, fuck? What is that Happy Meal is going on? It's okay. I definitely laugh too. But uh, yeah, Daniel displays all three of those traits. That and is I, so scary. And as a child, he indeed completed the triad. And also something chilling to throw in real quick. Get get this. After Daniel committed the murders, he was diagnosed by doctors as a genuine psychopath. And these doctors also said that on the psychopathy scale, Daniel Marsh scored higher than both John Wayne Gacy and Jeffrey Lionel Dahmer. Holy shit. John Gacy scored a 27 out of 40 on this scale. Jeffrey Dahmer scored 23 out of 40. Daniel Marsh scored 35.8 out of 40. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, like, what the fuck, bro? Yeah, it's insane. It's like I was saying in the beginning of this, Daniel was a true psychopath. Like he was a, he was genuinely, God. genuinely, genuinely a psychopath. I cannot stress that enough. I am uncomfortable. So going back to the main story, Daniel's behavior and mental state did not improve as he got older. It only worsened when he got into his teen years. And at the age of 13, Daniel started drinking heavily and smoking weed. And his drinking led to him being kicked out of his father's house when he was 14. Daniel's dad was very against him drinking alcohol and smoking and, you know, all of that. So he told Daniel that he had to go live with his mom. Daniel also had a pretty rough time at school. He was definitely bullied by the other students for a number of different reasons. Daniel had more of an alternative style. He wore all black a lot of the time, combat boots. And he also liked metal music and hard rock music, which, same. Same. Same Samesies. Daniel loved horror movies, video games. He was just into all of that. And he stuck out from the other kids because of it. And we all know kids can be very cruel, and they were, unfortunately. In May of 2010, Daniel started seeing a clinical social worker named David Besa. And on Daniel's intake form, it described him as having lots of vivid nightmares, violent and angry outbursts extreme nervousness and generalized anxiety along with antisocial behavior it would be in august of that same year that daniel was prescribed his first antidepressant which was prozac daniel was instructed to take two a day at 100 milligrams each holy shit and he was only 13 at the time that he was first medicated like they didn't think to stair step him up like i i guess not I guess not. And I'll go ahead and just say this too, not trying to excuse Daniel in any way, but like they had this kid like medicated like all over the place. I don't, I don't, I per, I'm not a doctor, but I don't personally see how that would help anybody, especially a 13 year old child. We're going to get more into it, but he was first put on Prozac and then he was diagnosed with depression, anxiety disorder, as well as emotional disturbance. Now, the following year in 2011, when Daniel was 14 years old, this is the year that he got kicked out of his dad's house, as I brought up earlier. Mm -hmm. 2011 would also be the year that Daniel developed an eating disorder, uh, anorexia nervosa. Damn. 
In December of 2011, Daniel was hospitalized at the Berkeley Hospital for his anorexia for almost a month from December 29th, 2011 to January 25th of 2012. And his case was pretty severe. Daniel only weighed 93 pounds when he was admitted. And during oh his hot, ho- yeah, it, it's, it's sad. It's very sad. And during this hospitalization, doctors prescribed him Celexa and they changed his Prozac to Lexapro. But weeks after he was released from the hospital, they changed the Lexapro back to Prozac. Like switching medications like that isn't good either. It's not. And then they kept him on the Celexa additionally. So they, you know, like I said earlier, his medications were all over the place and none of it seemed to help Daniel at all. In 2012, Daniel's homicidal fantasies started becoming more and more frequent and more intense. And he also continued battling with his anorexia as well during this time. Daniel also started developing a deep fascination for serial killers such as Jeffrey Lionel Dahmer and Theodore Robert Bundy. He idolized the barbaric nature of their crimes. And Daniel decided that he wanted more than anything in the world to be a serial killer himself. That was his goal. Oh, my God. There was more than one instance in 2012 where police were called to the school due to Daniel telling his school counselor about his homicidal impulses. He was fantasizing about catching his school on fire and burning everyone alive. He was also fantasizing about shooting up his school as well. And in December of 2012, Daniel was involuntarily committed into a behavioral clinic after having one of these conversations with his counselor. He was deemed to be a threat to himself and others. And during this day at the hospital, he was taken off of Prozac and Celexa, and they were replaced with Zoloft and Seroquel. And then in January of 2013, which was just months before he committed the murders, Daniel was additionally prescribed Wellbutrin and Abilify. Okay, so... They had him extremely medicated. Yeah. Extremely. Wow, Okay. Yeah, it's it's a lot. Yeah, it's, it's it was a, lot a lot to process. It's I a mean, lot to process. I'm not a doctor, but you know, I do have mental illness, and and, and I just, I mean, personally, you know, some of the medications, like yeah, they they do seem to work. But I know for a fact that when you just quit someone off their medication, and like then that, you just throw something entirely new, and then you switch it, that's not good because a lot of yeah. those medications, like the the minute you stop it, some of them can have side effects of like seizures. Heart attacks, strokes, that type of thing. It's very serious. I mean, it's crazy because they, they had him on one thing. They took took that away from him, prescribed him something else, and then weeks later switched it back. And then they prescribed him three new things. Like, I just, they, they have him all over the place. And he's 13, 14 years old at this time. So, I mean, it's, it's just fucking insane to me. That's but. barbaric is what that is. It, yeah. It, honestly, yeah. In, in a kind of way, it honestly really is. It, it really I, I don't. Is. I couldn't imagine how this affected his brain chemistry, like truly. But, you know, I'll get off that tangent again. We are not doctors here on this podcast, so, you know, whatever. But also in late January of 2013, Daniel had another meeting with his school counselor in which he told him that he was fantasizing about murdering his classmates. And when the counselor asked Daniel if he thought he would act on his thoughts, Daniel responded, quote, I have full confidence that I could hurt these people, end quote. So this instance resulted in a police officer being brought to the school. But after speaking with Daniel, this officer concluded that Daniel did not pose a threat to himself or others and nothing happened. The following month in February of 2013, Daniel confided in his counselor that he had fantasies involving him cutting the eyelids off of as well as peeling the skin off of the arms and hands of other people. Uh, 
Oh, okay, okay, okay. That just, ooh, physically uncomfortable. (laughs) Yeah, Daniel also added that these fantasies that he was speaking of only merely scratched the surface of the full depths of his thoughts. Oh, my God. And no authorities were involved in this situation because there didn't appear to be an identified intention, plan of action, or victim. And it would be two months later that Daniel did what he did. Like... I just feel like if he had some actual help, like an actual therapist, like a regular therapist that he talked to and a steady dose of, you know, medication, medication that, like something. Right, right. Like, I do believe that he could have gotten help before carrying out this because there's so many signs here. Right. And that that is, you know, this case is very divided in that aspect. But. You know, and I I feel the need to reiterate, too, I'm not defending Daniel. I'm not trying to justify what he did because we haven't even gotten into it. There is there is no justification for it. But you can't help but look at like he's a child. Yeah, he's a child and he clearly has really, really deep seated issues and problems. And you're 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 putting him on all of this crazy intense medication like this yeah. is not like Benadryl or fucking Claritin like this is serious shit that they have him on and you to know? further clarify like we do like seeing both sides of the coin and not just right you know right. not just automatically you know writing whoever off I mean I guess you could put it that way but there are specific things that lead to people doing things like this right, there are right. so many signs right that that just go unnoticed. Right. And if you've listened to our show for a while and you're familiar with Ray and I, you know we love having these kinds of conversations. If you're newer to the show, then that's something for you to know. We like looking at all sides of it. As you said, both sides of the coin. Right. So to continue on, in the weeks leading up to the murders, Daniel started talking amongst his friends, telling all of them that he wanted to torture and then kill someone. <sighs> Fuck, man. Daniel would also brag about how if he was caught for killing someone, that he would claim insanity to get out of it. Daniel even wrote a detailed plan on how he was going to lure, torture, and kill his girlfriend's ex-boyfriend. That is premeditated as fuck. He was very vocal about all of this. In Daniel's art class, he was painting disturbing images which depicted gory violence. And Daniel also had a Tumblr page where he posted real-life gore porn and gore content. Daniel had a fascination with bestgore.com, and he constantly watched their stuff, and he shared it all over his Tumblr page. He said later in his interrogation that the content he watched and shared made him laugh. And for those of you that don't know what the Best Gore website is, Long, I do. You right, don't want it. <laughs> long story short, it's basically a gore porn website, but for like actual gore, like literal videos of people being killed and and tortured, and it's just, it's it's bad. It's it. The point of me saying that is that it's real. It's not fake. And Daniel was obsessed with this. He was obsessed with watching stuff like that. Take my word for it. Do not go search this out because unless you are ready to come out the other side of this website, a completely different person. Yeah, there's just <laughs> there's no need. We are not going to advocate. Kate, anybody Ooh. look at anything like that. So now I'm going to take us to the night of April 13th, 2013. After years of experiencing homicidal urges, Daniel finally decided that he had had enough. He decided that he, in fact, was going to find someone to kill. Fuck. And Daniel prepared for the crime extremely well, almost too well. Daniel wore all black clothes with a black face mask. And he wrapped his shoes in layers of duct tape so he would avoid leaving footprints of any kind. 
Daniel also wore gloves to keep from leaving fingerprints. And it's shocking as hell to think about, you know, because he's only 15. And he is so calculated. And he executed these murders so well forensically that he almost got away with it. Truly, he almost did. The only thing that got him caught for this was his bragging. Nothing else. Wow. Yes, he was like FBI agents. All of the police, you know, officers working the case said this was one of the most well-executed murders they had ever worked. They couldn't solve it. So, that is, and for a child to carry that yeah, out he, is He's just... 15. And I mean, we're going to get into all of that, but he's 15. So after Daniel taped his shoes and put on gloves, he armed himself with a six-inch buck knife. And it was between 2 and 3 a.m. when he set out on foot from his mother's house to roam the streets of Davis in search of a victim. He didn't have anyone in mind. He just started checking people's houses to see if he could find an open door or an open window to crawl through. According to Daniel's confession, he checked 40 to 50 houses before he finally found the home of Claudia and Chip. Daniel found that they had a window that was left open, so he slashed the screen and crawled inside. Okay, everybody, what did we learn? Don't leave doors and windows unlocked. (laughs) Yeah, like for Jesus Christ, for sure. Uh, And before we get into exactly what Daniel did, I think it's important to take a moment to talk about Claudia and Chip, who they were as people. Okay. Oliver Northup Jr., also Chip, was born on April 26th, 1935 in Grand Island, Nebraska, and he served in the United States Navy during World War II. Chip, yeah, he worked as an attorney for the largest part of his life, receiving his undergraduate degree from UCLA, and he also received a bachelor's degree in law from the UC Berkeley School of Law. He worked as an attorney up until the time of his death, and aside from practicing law, Chip was also a founding member of the Unitarian Universalist Church of Davis. He was very active in the church. Chip was also a musician, and he even played in his own folk band called the Put- the Puta or Puta Creek Crawdads. Oh, that is so cute. That's literally, yeah, the, I, I don't know which one, but it's the, I'm just going to say Puta Creek Crawdads. But yeah, he played in a folk band. He That's did his really own cool. thing. He was 87 years old at the time of his death, and he was described as a very loving husband, father, and grandfather. Claudia Maureen Maupin was born on May 15, 1936 in Solano County, California, and at the time she met Chip, she was working as a pastoral associate at the Unitarian Church in Davis. So the two of them met through the church, and it was love at first sight for them. Even though they were older and they had been married before with kids, it didn't stop the spark. Claudia's children and Chip's children agreed that the two families blended very well together, and it was very clear from everyone on the outside that they were madly in love with each other. And it would be around 1996 that the couple got officially married to one another, and they just lived their life and did their thing. They were truly just in love. Claudia also loved being involved with her local theater, and at the time of her death, she was 76 years old. She was described as bright, funny, loving, and extremely kind, and she loved spending time with her loved ones. Between the two of them, Claudia and Chip had 11 children, 14 grandchildren, and 8 great-grandchildren. 11 children? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, they had their children in previous marriages, but together they had 11, yes. Oh, man. Like, that is so sweet. 
That yeah. is like so sweet and also so sad at the same time. Yeah, it absolutely uh, breaks my heart. Uh, I'm sitting over here frowning with all like puppy dog eyes and stuff. Just... <laughs> <laughs> so going back to the night of April 13th, Daniel walked up to the home of Claudia and Chip. He realized there was a window open, so as I said a little bit ago, he cut the screen with his buck knife, and then he entered the home, and it was dark inside. Daniel listened to the sounds of snoring coming from the back of the house, and he followed those sounds to the bedroom of Claudia and Chip. They were both sound asleep in their bed. Daniel stood over the sleeping couple for nearly 10 minutes as he contemplated how he wanted to kill them. And he would later describe that as he did this, he felt, quote, nervous, but excited and exhilarated, end quote. Daniel drew his knife, and before he could do anything, Claudia woke up, and when she saw Daniel standing there watching her, she began to scream, and Daniel immediately started stabbing her repeatedly in her torso. Oh, God. Daniel also said later that as Claudia screamed in agony, begging for her life, that it only fueled his excitement and it motivated him to keep stabbing her more ferociously as time went on. Daniel said later that it took a lot more to kill Claudia than he initially thought. He said, quote, the old lady just would not die, end quote. Claudia's screams caused Chip to wake up, and before he could even process what was going on, Daniel lunged, stabbing him in his throat, and then he continued to stab him violently all over his body until he was dead. Chip suffered 61 stab wounds in total. God most of which were inflicted to his torso, abdomen, neck, and even his legs. He suffered extensive internal damage to his spleen and liver and other organs, and his left lung was punctured as well. The stab wounds on Chip's legs were believed to be defensive in nature, with some of the stab wounds indicating that Daniel plunged the knife completely through his leg, multiple times. Claudia suffered 67 stab wounds to her neck, mouth, jaw, and even her spine. One of the stab wounds to her mouth actually took out one of her teeth. Her left arm was also completely mangled due to the numerous stab wounds, with some of those wounds also indicating that the knife had been stabbed clean through her arm numerous times. Daniel also used his knife to cut chunks of fat off of Claudia's leg afterwards. But even after Daniel brutally stabbed both of them to death, he wasn't done. He wanted to mutilate their bodies. So Daniel completely disemboweled both Claudia and Chip. Oh my God. He cut their abdomens open with his knife, opened their torsos, and he removed their organs. And Daniel would later claim in his interrogation that he had a deep fascination with anatomy and the inner workings of the human body. So as he eviscerated Claudia and Chip, he was examining their insides with his hands. Daniel also tried using the knife to remove one of Claudia's eyeballs which turned out to be too difficult for him to do, so he gave up. And Daniel also used his knife to slice open Chip's forehead because he wanted to peel back to see what was behind the skin. And the last thing that Daniel did was that he placed a black Nokia cell phone inside the abdominal cavity of Claudia. And then he put a drinking glass inside Chip in the same area. And Daniel would later admit that he did this to, quote, fuck with the minds of the people who would later investigate this case. End quote. Well, He's 15. I Okay, first, like, the first thought that got me, and we've had this conversation so many times, so you guys are probably so sick of hearing this, but 
we have talked several times on the amount of stamina and force that it takes and to, rage uh, yes to repeatedly stab someone to that degree but then we get into a whole nother level where he's actually like eviscerating them and taking their organs out and uh, just what just <laughs> my brain is so fucked right now yeah, I told you this. I, this is fucking rough, like rough. Fifteen. Like I can't help but remind you guys of that. He's fucking fifteen. Okay, guys, I'm taking another week for a mental health break. No, I'm just playing. <laughs> <laughs> oh so, my god! After Daniel was done, he took his knife and went back home. He kept the knife as well as his bloody clothes as souvenirs. And in the days following the murders. Daniel attempted looking for more victims, arming himself with a baseball bat as he roamed the streets at night. He knew that having an M.O. was a common way for killers to get caught, so he wanted to use the baseball bat so his next crime wouldn't be tied to the stabbing deaths of Claudia and Chip. I just, I have no words. No fucking words. I have none. So, the morning after the murders, April 14th, 2013, Claudia and Chip didn't show up to church which was way out of character for both of them. This definitely caused their family members to grow concerned. And Chip also missed a gig that afternoon that he was supposed to play with his band. So by the end of the day, Claudia's daughter, Laura, had contacted the police and she joined them to do a welfare check. And when Laura got to Claudia's and Chip's house, she knocked several times, calling out for her mom, but there was no answer. So Laura, as well as some police officers, go around the back of the house, and this is where they find the slashed open window screen. And upon entering the home, it didn't take investigators long to make the gruesome discovery of Claudia's and Chip's bodies. The house was immediately ruled as a crime scene, and detectives, along with several FBI agents, worked tirelessly trying to collect any evidence that they could find. But here's the thing. It's like I said earlier. There was no evidence left behind. As that little tangent stated, Daniel took great care and calculation to make sure that he didn't leave any DNA or any other traces of himself at the crime scene, and he succeeded. Everyone was completely baffled, not only by the savagery of the crimes, but also by how someone could do something like this and not leave anything behind. It's fucking wild. And the murders went unsolved for two months. And as sad as it is, Chip's son, Robert, as well as Chip's two grandsons, Tony and Oliver, were initially looked at as suspects. Get the fuck. Oh, my God. They oh, were, my God. Yeah, they were interrogated for over 12 hours. The police found out that Oliver had schizophrenia, and they tried to use that against him, which that is fucking enraging. But I'm not even going to go on the tangent. But, like, just because someone has schizophrenia does not mean that they're a violent homicidal maniac. Like, that's not how that fucking works. So that's insane. And they also found out that Chip's son, Robert, had his carpets cleaned the day of the murders, which, I mean, yeah, that does look pretty suspicious, but he was completely innocent. It was a shitty coincidence. Obviously, Daniel's the one that committed this. So they're, the police are looking at all of this, and they're just trying to, to pin them with it. And I couldn't imagine, like, Robert ended up paying thousands of dollars to repair his home after the police ripped all of his carpets up, plus attorney fees. And Robert, Tony, and Oliver were all ridiculed, you know, not only by police, but also their community. I mean, it's absolutely insane, and it's so sad that they endured this 
while being innocent. You know, you have to think about it. They're being pinned for these murders. But on top of that, they're trying to process the fact that their dad and granddad was brutally murdered. Right. And that that's the part that's like really upsetting me because, you know, they're trying to grieve while also simultaneously the police and the community are pinning them for it thank you that's yeah like you know like some damage just can't be undone like this family went through a complete nightmare it's very heartbreaking like i understand that the police have like you know what is it that 48 hour window to really like be on the lead and to try to find something but like to falsely pin somebody with this right one just because they have schizophrenia is like you said, that that's fucking wild. Like that's enraging. And then the carpet cleaning thing, which right. granted that does that doesn't look good, but I mean, I don't know personally. I think the police were just rolling with whatever they could grasp at because they had nothing. But like a carpet cleaning thing isn't the same thing as having new carpet put in. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. So right. like all they had to do was go through there with their forensic lights and a couple of swabs and you know what I mean? Maybe. Right. I, I believe there was a lot that could have been done in this regard. I just think it's really sad that they're having to process this while also having to deal with the scrutiny and the ostracization Austra- with the ostriches. <laughs> with the ostriches. I can't say it either. Being ostracized there. I just think, you know, as I've said a couple of times, I won't keep repeating the same point, but it's very sad that this family had to grieve. Yeah. Claudia and Chip, while also at the same time they're being pinned by not only authorities but by the community. Like, that is, people are fucking cruel. I couldn't imagine. But for Daniel, life was fantastic. During those two months after the murders, Daniel seemed to be riding a euphoric high. It's almost as if he had all of this pent up rage that he just released and now he was doing incredible. His temperament shifted to very kind and outgoing. His mental health noticeably improved, his mood improved, his grades improved, so much so that he was named student of the month at Davis High School where he attended. He was just living worry-free, seemingly doing the best he had ever done in his entire life. But the fatal mistake that Daniel made was his arrogance. He was so proud of what he had done, and so proud that he had seemingly gotten away with it that he started bragging. He told all of his friends and even his girlfriend, all about the murders. He confided every grisly detail. And he also went on to say that he was excited to keep killing and that he was going to keep killing because he had already proven to himself that he was smart enough to get away with it. And at this point, police had no idea who Daniel was. They had no idea that a child had been the one to commit these murders. There were no leads, no nothing. That is, until one of Daniel's friends from school called the police to tell them that Daniel was in fact the one who committed the murders because you know he was bragging about it yeah so I'm going to play a portion of this call for you now who am I speaking with uh, I want to remain anonymous is that okay okay uh, what are you calling to report sir um, the double homicide that happened in April this year what can you tell me about that uh, everything actually okay and how is it that you were able to uh have all this information about it. The person told me everything. So you know who did it? Yes. Okay, let's start from the beginning. You said he disclosed this to you uh, a few nights after the actual death of these people. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. Why do you think he disclosed it to you, first of all? 
I can't really answer that because that, that will give me away. Okay, okay, go ahead and just tell me everything that you, you told me again. I'm a, I'm a very close friend of his. I know him better than anyone else. Okay. He's a, he's a really good liar. He's He has a lot of problems, mm-hmm. and he has a lot of problems, actually. Okay, so where do his problems stem from? His problems come from family. He's, had a, he's always had a messed up life, and I've always tried to be there for him. But then after this, I just, I couldn't because he's going to hurt more people and I can't just, yeah, I, yeah, I can't. Okay. What's your concern? What's your concern about uh, remaining anonymous? The reason why I don't, if he finds out it's me, because he's, if, yeah, if he finds out it's me, he's going to, he's going to try to after me or try to get his friends after me. And I don't want to just don't want, I don't want that to happen. Oh, my God, that poor kid is so scared out of his mind. Of Daniel. Yeah, and I mean, I mean, awesome that he called in. And Yeah, because I mean, I will say, and I don't want to cut off your point, but it's very noteworthy because Daniel's friend, him calling in, even though he was scared shitless of Daniel, ultimately is what broke this case. It's yeah. ultimately what led the police to Daniel. He saved unknowingly. There's no telling how many lives. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, because he had, he had that clear intent to continue to do it. Right. So, you know, Daniel's friend asked to remain anonymous because he was afraid if Daniel found out that he had turned him in, that Daniel would come after him. And evidently, Daniel had made threats like this on a number of occasions. So the police now had Daniel's name. And the very next day, they brought him in for questioning. Daniel was first interrogated by a Davis detective named Ariel Pineta. I don't know if I'm saying that last name right. Please forgive me if I'm not. And then after Ariel interviewed him, Daniel was then questioned by FBI Special Agent Chris Campion. Now, Daniel's interrogation has more than a few notable points. Firstly, as a minor, he was interrogated without a guardian or attorney present. But this did happen in California, I'm actually not sure if that's a legal thing out there or not, so I don't want to speak on that too much. If any of you are from California or living in California and you have some knowledge about this, please let us know. I would like to understand more. Yeah, and we always love to hear from you guys because we're from Georgia and, you know, we don't know how things are in California. All we have is Dollar General. Literally, that and family dollars. (laughs) So, so, um, you know, that would actually help us understand a little bit more about further cases that may come from California, especially regarding a minor. Because I know here, isn't it illegal to not have a guardian or a... It, like, looks very bad on the police if you don't have a guardian or at least an attorney here. Yeah, when you're interviewing a minor, honestly, I want to say that's the case, but I honestly don't. No. I mean, but those laws change all the time. Yeah, I honestly don't know. I just thought it was interesting. I mean, yeah, it is interesting. I just wanted to bring up the point that he was interrogated alone more so than like trying to explain it. <laughs> I just I just wanted that to be a point that I brought up. Um I'll leave it to us just, you know, thinking and talking about everything. <laughs> <laughs> Daniel spent the majority of the time in his interrogation being very nonchalant about things. And when the murders were brought up, Daniel adamantly denied having anything to do with them. He had a very vague and dismissive way of recounting everything to the detectives. Hmm. And during the rapport building phase of the interview, 
Ariel brought up Daniel's past and all of the problems he seemed to face because of his upbringing and his family. And during this part of the interview, Daniel went from very vague to very descriptive and talkative. He started opening up a little to Ariel. Daniel described the hurt and the anger that he felt towards his mom for leaving them for another woman. Daniel described his mother as selfish for putting her happiness before her children's. He also talked about how it had been hell living with his dad for the years that he did, and Daniel again described his dad as a very angry person. So after Ariel was finished with his line of questioning, Chris then went in to question Daniel, and eventually he brought up Daniel's Tumblr page, and he asked Daniel to describe the kind of stuff that he shared and posted on there, and Daniel explained that he liked horror movies and gore, both fictional and real gore. He told Chris that he was fascinated with that kind of thing because it made him feel something. Mm. Whereas in most areas of his life, he was unable to feel anything. He said that his fascination with anatomy plus the general shock of real gore was just something that he liked. He said he had always been into darker things and he also added, quote, I don't know, sometimes they'll be like in a funny pose or something and it'll just look stupid and so I'll giggle at it, end quote. And he made that comment talking about the warped poses that some of the bodies would be in in the gore porn. And after this, Chris then kind of turned up the heat a bit, but he's doing it in a very not aggressive kind of way. He just says to Daniel, you know, I don't know how much you've talked with the other detective, but we've heard some rumors. Those rumors being that you committed these murders and that you know all about them because you committed these murders. Fuck. And Daniel freezes for a moment, and he reacted like the whole accusation was just absurd. He just kind of brushed it off immediately. And I actually have a small audio clip here from this portion of the interrogation, so I'm going to play that for you now so you can hear it for yourself. Okay. So the, the, the rumors that he's referring to are people saying specific things about what you have told other people. What? What would that be? That that you were there. That you did those murders. Me. Mm-hmm. That's ridiculous. Why is it ridiculous? I'm a kid. No. That's <laughs> well. Like I don't. I don't hurt people. Like, you can ask anyone around me. I'm a compassionate, affectionate person. I care about people. I don't want to hurt them. I mean, yeah, they piss me off sometimes, and they do some messed up shit, but I care about people. I find it really interesting how he told the detective that beforehand he couldn't feel anything and the gore is what made him feel something and then all of a sudden it switched no i'm a compassionate affectionate outgoing person that you know what i mean like that is that is backpedaling to yeah <laughs> at mock jesus like just backpedaling just, <laughs> you know i mean it's safe to say that this kind of reaction definitely made daniel look a lot more suspicious in the eyes of Chris. I mean, it's definitely a little odd. Daniel doesn't deny committing the murders. Rather, he tries to emphasize how loving and caring of a person he is. He's making it seem as if he's so good and so kind-hearted. 
that there would just be no way he could ever do something like this. He even says the whole, you know, I'm a kid. Ask, I know, yeah. Ask anyone around me. I don't want to hurt people. I'm I'm so affectionate. I kind of like scoffed at that when he was like, I'm a kid. And I was like, okay. Right, because... but I mean, on that same, I mean, on that same note too, it's fucking chilling. Yeah. It's fucking chilling. Like that's the first defense that, that he went to was just like, oh, I'm a kid. Uh, surprise, my name's Gage. I'm here to tell you Daniel Marsh is a fucking psychopath. Well, guess what, <laughs> motherfucker? Like, years before you, there was a 12-year-old named Sharon Carr. <laughs> you, you know oh, what I mean? Oh, God. I can't, like... I'm not even going to go down that rabbit hole. I'm not. So, continuing on. So, Chris tells Daniel, going forward, about the specific things that they heard. He doesn't go into any, like, grisly, grisly details just yet. But right. he's like, look, we were told... That you were telling people specific information regarding these murders. Information that only someone who was there would know. Right. So Daniel tries to shift the blame and he tells Chris that his friend or whoever it was that told him was just simply trying to screw him over. He said, quote, my friend is really fucking up my life right now. I don't know. It seems like you guys have a vendetta out for me or something. End quote. And at this point in the interview... Ariel comes back into the room. So now Daniel is talking to both Chris and Ariel. And Daniel just started slinging mud. He just started talking about how he had seen his friend kill animals, including choking a cat to death and throwing it in a trash can, which we all know that that that's that's something that Daniel himself did. Maybe not specifically the trash can part, but Daniel definitely did kill animals. He killed a cat. So Chris immediately tells Daniel... You know, that's what people have told us that you did. Oh, like we've heard that you're the one killing animals and choking cats to death. And Daniel again denies everything, saying that he's never hurt any animal, not intentionally anyways. And then he says, quote, oh, but I did get mad and hit my dog before I kicked it because it was annoying. End quote. Th- that does not. No. Yeah, it's like I don't hurt animals intentionally unless I'm angry. Unless I'm mad and then I kick him. So what the fuck? It's fucking crazy. So for over an hour after this, Chris applies more and more pressure to his line of questioning. He even tries stroking Daniel's ego, referring to the murders as both a work of art and a masterpiece. And he explains that he believed the murders were a product of compulsion. So basically, Chris is using an interrogation technique. He's purposefully minimizing the murders to see if he can get Daniel to, like, you know, admit to anything. Yeah. He's like, you know, these murders, I mean, it was a work of art. It was a masterpiece, like, well executed. Like, you know, it's a compulsion. You, you can, you know, you can tell me he's, he's playing that side yeah. of it. But it doesn't work. And Daniel continues to deny having anything to do with the murders. I have another clip for you. And I'm going to play that for you now. Oh, God. Wouldn't you be kind of freaked out if you already have anxiety and social anxiety and you're brought in here and people are accusing you of killing people? It has nothing to do with being freaked out. It has to be doing what I can see when you're telling the truth and when you're not. And I know when you're telling the truth and when you're not. And you're not telling the truth now, then. Yes, I am. I didn't kill anybody. I've never killed anyone before. I don't want to kill anyone. I don't want to hurt anyone. The person who did this will do it again. I have no doubt about it. They 
can't not. It's the inside obsession. It's the compulsion. Well, then maybe that's where you'll find your life. So we're just going to put out an ad talking about obsession and compulsion and see what pulls, okay? That's what we're going to do. Like, what the fuck? It's all over the place. I'm telling you. I don't like it. But the note to take here, Daniel is very adamant. I did not kill anyone. I've never killed anyone before. Oh, maybe that's where you're going to find your guy. Like, he is just... He's not giving in to any of the interrogation techniques. He's very, very much still denying everything. So shortly after that interaction, Chris leaves the interrogation room for roughly half an hour. And when he comes back, he asks Daniel if he could collect some mouth swabs. He was wanting to collect some DNA from Daniel for evidence. And Chris also had Daniel take his boots off. And he asked Daniel if he had ever worn them around blood of any kind. And Daniel responded that he more than likely had walked through some roadkill at some point. Chris also asked if there would be any reason that there would be duct tape residue on the bottom of the boots. And Daniel replied no. And it was very shortly after this that Daniel asked if he could go home. To which the officers informed him that they were keeping his boots and his cell phone as evidence. So Daniel gets really nervous at this point and he tried saying that he needed his phone to talk to his mom and his friends and he needed his shoes so he could walk home. But Chris tells him that he wouldn't have to worry about those things for the time being. Oh, shit. (laughs) So then Chris and Ariel play a recorded phone call for Daniel. It's a recording of his friend and his ex-girlfriend. And in the call, they're talking about giving information to the police regarding Daniel and him bragging about the murders. So I believe personally that Chris and Ariel played this call for Daniel to kind of show him that they knew everything to like show him like, hey, the people that you bragged about have told on you, my guy, and we know. So like, stop your fucking shit and just tell us Um, because, you know, Daniel obviously knew that he had bragged to his friend and his girlfriend about what he did. Right. He knows that. So the heat really turned up after that point. I mean, so much for anonymity, though, like. Yeah, that, I guess that didn't last too long. No, that, that, that didn't last long at all, baby. So the heat really turns up in the interrogation after this point. Chris has almost completely dropped his nice cop act, and he's being super direct with Daniel, telling him, you know, you're going to lie. You're going to hide things that are inconvenient for you, but none of what you're saying is consistent with someone who's innocent. You need to, like, tell me the fucking truth. Mm-hmm. And finally... After almost four hours of questioning, Daniel breaks. And he started describing how whenever he looked at people, that he was overcome with flashes of images of him killing them. And he started to spill. I have another audio clip for you. I'm going to let you hear Daniel explain this in his own words. And I'm going to play that now. Every time I look at someone... In my mind, I see flashes of images of me killing them in numerous ways, in numerous horrible ways, doing terrible things. I can't help it. It's just what comes into my head when I see them. I don't want it to. I don't like that it does, but it does. Right. And that's around the time that that started. These were other people at school, um, students. It's with everyone. Everyone. Everyone I look at. Okay. Family members. Family members. Loved ones. 
doesn't matter. It's fucking disgusting, but it's my head. Okay, no. It's not a desire. It's a thought. It just appears. You know? I don't enjoy it. So I see you, right? <laughs> and then I start seeing all these pictures. <laughs> and I, I don't like it, man. I don't. Let, let me not make fun of him. It, it's just, I don't know. It's, um, it's, it's, it's chilling. It's really, really fucking chilling. I guess chilling. I'm just trying to make jokes about it because I am so uncomfortable right now. Yeah, we're, we're definitely, uh, ploying some, uh, coping mechanisms right now. Oh God. Are we ever? I mean, it's chilling because at this point, Daniel is 16 because he was 15 when he committed the murders, but that next month after he committed the murders, he turned 16. Gotcha. So, I mean, he's a child, and you're hearing him matter-of-factly describe how every single time he looks at someone, he's overcame with images of how he would brutally kill them. Oh, uh, I don't like this. It is chilling. And shortly after this, Chris asks Daniel how he would kill him. Just to well, like, just, just no, to like, don't, don't, just to hear. <laughs> what the fuck are you doing, bro? Right. <laughs> no. And I figured that I would just let you hear Daniel's response from his mouth. Oh my god! Oh my god! I'm gonna play that for you now. You um, mentioned that pretty much everybody you meet, you have thoughts about killing them and how you would kill them. Yeah. So how would you kill me? There's a lot of ways. I mean, that you've thought of so far in the couple of hours that we spent together here. Um, choking you to death with your tie. Okay. Uh, beating your face into the mirror until it broke and using the glass to cut your arteries. Uh, gouging your eyes out and just smashing your face into the wall. Okay. Nothing personal. I know, it's just, that's what happens when you meet somebody, when you're thinking, when there's yeah, that time, when you... Involuntary. What the fuck? <laughs> Hold the... F Whoa. Hold on. Oh, that guy has balls for sitting there listening to that because I would be like, what? You said what? Excuse me? Holy shit, bro. No. 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 It's hard to wrap your mind I, <laughs> your face right now. I can't. Oh, no. No. Can we watch anime after this? Absolutely. I'm, I don't, I'm uncomfortable and I don't like this. Absolutely. We're for sure going to be real comfortable after this and relax. And I promise. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> that, no. No. I'm sorry. That just got to me because how in the fuck... He's younger than Dalen. I know, and I think that's what's really fucking me up right now because he was so just matter-of-fact of like, oh, I could do this, and I could do this to you, and I could do that to <laughs> oh, you. Oh, yeah, a lot of ways, actually. A choking you to death with your with your tie, smashing <laughs> your head into the wall, into the, the glass, fuck? and cutting your arteries and gouging your eyes out. Oh, yeah, man, nothing personal. Not that, that was the part that really got me. I came up out of my seat like, are you, are you serious? <laughs> it's really bad. It is really fucking bad. Oh, no, nah, man, it's nothing personal, but I would kill the shit out of you. <laughs> I <laughs> would literally kill you to death. <laughs> No. Yeah, it's awful. No. So, after this, Daniel started actually spilling and confessing. He goes on to describe how on the night of the murders that he just had enough, 
He described how he walked to several houses in the area looking for possible openings such as windows or doors. He described cutting the window screen, and he also described how exhilarated and excited he felt when he stood over Chips and Claudia's sleeping bodies. Then Daniel went on to recount the savage attack, and he commented on how pleasurable it was for him. Oh my God. Chris asked Daniel, quote, how did it feel, Dan? And Daniel responded, quote, I'm not going to lie. It felt amazing. It felt great. It was pure happiness and adrenaline and dopamine, just all of it rushing over me. It's the most exhilarating, enjoyable feeling I have ever felt, end quote. Daniel also states, quote, I don't feel sympathy for other people. I don't feel empathy for them. And whether I like that or not, it's the way it is. I want to hurt people. I want to kill people. But I don't want to want that, end quote. Oh, my God. That is so sad. Like, I, it's, like I, it's super fucked up, yeah, but, like, to to have that feeling that you you want to hurt people, like, you can't help that you want to hurt people, but you don't want to feel that way, and it's... Yeah, because, I mean, I, I, I don't know, because it is sad, but also, and I'm so not trying to be funny, I'm not, I'm not, but he's kind of a fucking psychopath, bro. So like, like, this I, is what the fuck psychopaths do. I don't do. know. Uh, based on the crime you committed two months ago, survey says that you do want to do it. <laughs> so, like, because if you didn't want to do it, guess what, Daniel? You would not do it. But that could just be me. That could just be me. Oh I mean, God. I don't know. I could be way out there for that. But I'm just saying. So now, at this point, after over five hours of questioning... Detectives now have everything they need, and that same day, June seventeenth, two 2013, 16-year-old Daniel Marsh was arrested and charged with two counts of first-degree murder. His trial began on September second, two 2014, with Yolo County Superior Court Judge David Reed presiding, and the trial lasted for a total of five weeks. Daniel was at this point 17 years old, and he was tried as an adult on both counts of first-degree murder. Okay. He initially pleaded not guilty, but later he would change his plea to guilty by reason of insanity. And the jury for this trial consisted of eight women and four men. Mm. And during the course of this trial, Daniel's defense team argued that the amount of medication he was on compounded with his extensive list of mental health disorders triggered a state of temporary insanity where Daniel lashed out with extreme violence. Okay. But the prosecution on the case argued that point, saying that Daniel was far too calculated in his actions for that to be the case. Right. The prosecution argued that Daniel's interrogation alone proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that he was not insane, but rather calculated in evil. They said he knew exactly what he was doing at the time of the murders, and they also brought up how he not only bragged to his friends and his girlfriend about the murders, but he also attempted to kill again. On numerous occasions after the murders as well, changing his M.O. to prevent getting caught. Yeah. Several witnesses were also called to testify, including Daniel's ex-girlfriend and ex-best friend. Okay. But none of Daniel's defenses worked. And later in 2014 at his sentencing trial, 17-year-old Daniel Marsh was sentenced to 52 years to life in prison for the murders of Claudia and Chip. At this sentencing hearing... Prosecutor Michael Cabral said, quote, In my 28 years of being a prosecutor, never have I seen such a reprehensible act, and never have I seen a defendant with such an evil soul. End quote. God. And the children of both Claudia and Chip were allowed to give impact statements as well. 
Claudia's oldest daughter, Victoria, is quoted saying, quote, She lived her life loving people, always willing to lend a hand, a shoulder, or an ear. If she was here, she'd help us survive this, but she is not here because Daniel Marsh killed my mother for his own perverse gratification, end quote. It is absolutely heartbreaking. I just got fucking goose legs, like goose legs. Instead of chicken legs, this is the new era of goose legs, and I just got them. Goose legs and spine chills. So since his sentencing, Daniel has tried appealing his sentence a few times. All attempts have been unsuccessful, though. And another wild-ass thing that happened that I'll throw in, on May 16th, 2018, a YouTube video was uploaded of Daniel Marsh giving a TED Talk in his prison, and the name of his TED Talk was called Embracing Our Humanity. And yeah. it, <laughs> Bitch, what? Embracing Our Humanity. <laughs> and in this video, Daniel talked about how reformed he was and how learning about love and compassion changed his life while he was in prison. And he also stated that he deserved a second chance in society to show how much he had learned. He's quoted in this video as saying, quote, I came to realize that there are no evil people in this world, just damaged people. End quote. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Uh, Yeah, okay. All right. Needless to say, uh, this video was highly upsetting to the family and friends of both Chip and Claudia. Of course. And the video was removed from YouTube within two days. What the fuck? I know. That's that's what I'm saying. It's a whole bunch of fuck the what. Welcome to my TED Talk. Like, what the the fuck? Today, Daniel William Marsh is 26 years old, and he's serving out his sentence at the Richard J. Donovan Correctional Facility located in San Diego, and he will be eligible for parole after serving a minimum 25 years of his 52-year sentence. And you guys, that is going to conclude my case coverage of the teenage psychopath, Daniel Marsh. You're done. (laughs) (laughs) You say you're fucking done. I just, this story is, is like, it's very, very hard to wrap your head around. Um, I told you, like, we were on vacation for a month. I was coming back swinging. I, but like. I get very huge Sharon Carr vibes off of this because, you know, where she's like, you know, killing is my business and business is good. I mean, for him to get such an emotional high and like pleasure out of this, it it very much makes me think about that case. And and it's crazy. And for those of you that don't know, Sharon Carr is she's Britain's youngest killer, right? Yeah. Or one of Britain's youngest killers. Ray actually did an episode on her. It's very old, so you'd have to scroll back a little bit. But if you want to check that out, Ray did cover that, and it is atrocious. It's definitely atrocious, but, like... I mean, this story just fucks me up entirely. Like, I heard about it, and I was like, what? The, the phone, putting the phone and the glass, inside the drinking glass inside of them, like, just really, really did something to me, because it's... <laughs> Now do you see like why I told you don't you dare research this? <laughs> oh no, no. Actually there were so many YouTube videos that came across my recommended about Daniel Marsh and I purposely was like I'm I'm going to skip this 
And I'm so glad that I did because had I heard this, I would just. You said I would not be on today's episode. You'd I be doing it by your fucking you, self. You would be doing it by your fucking self because I feel like only hearing it one time is worse enough. It's worse enough. Good God. <laughs> oh, goodness. So I don't really have a lot of feedback to give at the end of this. I think throughout the episode, I made it very clear how I felt. I would like to reiterate the point from earlier that our condolences do go again to the families of Claudia and Chip. We may be a little goofy at times. And if you're new to the podcast and you aren't as familiar with Ray and I, we are pretty goofy. We have a silly little way of interacting. But when it comes down to the cases at hand, we are very serious about being as respectful and as empathetic as we can. So I'm just taking a little moment here to honor Claudia and Chip and their family and the loss that they clearly suffered. It's very heartbreaking. And I hope that all of you can find healing in some way, shape or form. It's absolutely such a, I, a tragic, tragic story. I thought that was very beautifully said, and I can't agree like any more than that because <laughs> I, I just, you know, me too. My heart goes out to you guys, and you know, to the rest of our n new listeners that may not be familiar with us, we laugh and joke a lot. Not only on the podcast, but also off of the podcast. This is totally not scripted. This is that, how we interact with that each is other. <laughs> literally, the only way that we cope with these type of things. Um, yeah, yeah. It's I, definitely I am, how we handle our anxiety. I just, I um, feel the need since we left for so long, and we're coming back, and we've had a lot of new listeners. Yeah. I, just, I just feel the need to kind of like introduce ourselves again and just remind people of that. You yeah, because while we were gone, we got a, a lot of new messages where they were like, "Hey, I just found your podcast, and I've binged every episode." And it's just like, you know, we don't ever want to be taken the wrong way because we have before in the past. And as long as everybody knows that we are 100% respectful toward these families and these stories really do impact us on a very personal level. I mean, we have cried over these stories. We have called and just vented and cussed each other out over the phone just trying to, like, you know, cope with some of the stuff that we read and deal with. And it, it's just it's um, we have eaten together, cried together, launched our assholes together. <laughs> We have done everything together. I'm calling workman's comp because my asshole is damaged. My heart went straight through my ass cheeks. We really do need to look into getting, like, instead of the staples button, it's just workman's comp so we can just slam that. <laughs> workman's comp! Yeah, just at any point. But, yeah, you guys, uh, we are happy to be back. You can expect Ray and I to have weekly uploads from this point. We hope you enjoy the new sound. This is a new era for our show. All of the thanks goes to each and every one of you for supporting us and being patient with us. We love you guys bunches. Thanks for tuning in. And I guess on that note, we are going to close everything out. So if you would like to follow Ray and I and all of our weird, <laughs> well, great news. You can totally do that. You can find us on Facebook at Gore Report, a true crime podcast. On Instagram at Gore Report Podcast. Or you can follow our Patreon. www.patreon.com slash Gore Report Podcast. And don't forget, you guys can totally send us an email to request or just say hi at Gore Report Pod at gmail.com. And I don't ever want to hear Daniel fucking Marsh's name again. <laughs> I am completely fucking traumatized. My ass needs stitches from my heart ejecting out of my body. 
Thank you and good night. You ready to watch some like really sad anime? Yes. Fuck yeah. <laughs> <laughs>